Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. All right, so that's Thief. Now, when it comes to heat, and when I was watching this um, this time, it almost struck me that it's like they got together. That Michael Mann said, "You know what? I really want to remake Thief in a different way and do it bigger and better, and you know, uh, in, in an updated sort of way." There were so many similarities in these yeah. two movies, including use of the word "slick," right, as a, as a nickname, right? That appears in the first one, even though um, Frank and Neil Macaulay, or was it Cauley or Macaulay? I don't remember now. Uh, Macaulay, Macaulay. Uh, were were different sort of characters in a way. They weren't that different, right? And kind of the themes that we see. So, TJ, why don't you tell us about Thief for anybody who hasn't seen it? Or Heat, rather. Yeah. I'm sorry. Heat. heat. Yeah. yeah. Heat. Sorry. Yeah. Here's another spoiler-filled summary. <laughs> so, Heat is the story of a master thief and a master cop. Robert De Niro plays Neil McCauley, an L.A.-based thief with a crew that includes Val Kilmer, playing the character of... Chris Shaherlis. At the beginning of the movie, they pull off an armed truck robbery, which goes off with military precision, except for a new member of the crew named Wayne Grow, who unnecessarily shoots and kills a security guard. Hours later, after they've regrouped, Macaulay's about to kill Wayne Grow for his transgression, but a police car drives by, and as he's distracted, Wayne Grow escapes. The police come in to investigate the crime long after it's done, with Vincent Hannum, played by Al Pacino, uh, heading the team, and he correctly discerns exactly what happened. We find out a few things about the personal lives of the major players. Neil McCauley lives in an empty apartment. His philosophy is that you have to be ready to leave your life at 30 seconds' notice, no matter what. He had four regular-sized plates, four small plates, four glasses, and four coffee cups in his cabinets. And no furniture in the <laughs> room. No furniture, yeah. So he describes his philosophy to Edie, played by Amy Brenneman, who works at a bookstore that he frequents. They have a one-night stand, which turns into a full relationship. Vincent Hanna, Al Pacino's character, is on his third marriage, which is showing strain because of the long hours he puts into his work and his unwillingness to share the grisly details of his work with his wife. So the police track the criminals, and the criminals cotton on to the fact the police have, are tracking them. Hanna pulls over Macaulay, who's driving... There's no crimes that he can be convicted of at this point, so he invites him to join him for a cup of coffee. Macaulay agrees, and the two sit across from each other at a diner, measuring each other up. They speak quite openly, and after mutually expressing respect, they both say some version of, if it comes to it, I'll kill you. And they part ways. The criminals then drop all their police tales and disappear and move on to their next heist, which is a bank robbery in downtown L.A. The police are fed a tip indirectly by Wayne Grow, who show up right as the thieves are leaving the bank, and there's a massive shootout, maybe a dozen or more deaths of criminals, police, bystanders, but all the major players survive. Macaulay comes up with a new plan to escape the country with the stolen money and tells Edie the truth about himself, and she agrees to go with him. The police leak the fact that Wayne Grow is staying in a hotel near the airport under a pseudonym. Macaulay takes the bait, turning up at the last minute to exact revenge against Wayne Grow. Pulls a fire alarm at the hotel, and in the chaos that ensued, he gets into Wayne Grow's room and kills him. 
He escapes with Hannah in pursuit. He makes eye contact with Edie, which is enough to say we're done. Then he runs off, making his way to the hangars and runways of LAX. And then the cop and the criminal stalk each other in the dark, and eventually Hannah sees Macaulay, shoots him, and kills him. And Macaulay dies in Hannah's arms. Tom, why don't you tell us your thoughts on Heat and Enneagram Type 8? I thought it was a shadow play, like I said before. I I have a little trouble with shouty Al Pacino. He's got two modes. Yeah. One of them's real subtle, and one of them's really overdone and has familiar gimmicks each time he does it. Like, he, he'll make his eyes really big when he's trying to sound threatening. But he didn't, you know, He I thought he was trying to play an eight, basically. I didn't, I didn't think he quite pulled it off. But De Niro was quite clear as sort of an eight with, in my parlance, a nine wing. The, the kind of numbness and the kind of laugh, lack of affect and the a receptive quality in a way, uh, except his intuitions were all, you know, dedicated to sussing out betrayal and, you know, related to his criminal enterprises of various kinds. This film was made before. Michael Mann made a TV movie in 1979 that was like a rehearsal, like a first draft of Heat. And apparently uh, the opinions on it were mixed, but he said it really helped him work out the, the eventual uh, 1995 film. But he, it was pretty, pretty tight. And one of the things he said about it that stuck with me was he said he wanted to go into the universe of each character and make you feel what their life, life was like and what their world was like. And... I thought he really did that, and it it accounted for some of the segues in the film and some of the I don't know the the difference in pacing, but it really worked too. And plus, he had yeah. just a, an array of of very good actors, one after another. It was really well cast, mm -hmm. just to, down to the the minor parts, and very intense, and you know, very much a crime story, and very much a. Uh, People being sociopaths, in, in, on, which is a hazard on the low side of eight, you know. Russ? Yeah, I mean, some of the things we've already touched on, I think, yes, there, in a certain way, Heat was kind of thief on steroids. You know, it's just the bigger, bolder version of some of the th same thematic elements. But again, this detail, like, I don't think... When I first saw that, when it came out so many years ago, we all were ooh and awe ah because no one had ever shown this sort of ingenious criminal plan like they did in there. And I, I, as I watched it, I was suddenly going, you know, this is what Christopher Nolan picked up on for the Batman movies. And I looked it up, and indeed, he said mm. he was an enormous influence on what he ended up doing on his later films to actually show you the mechanics of what, and that serves a very interesting function in the film. You know, there's a certain way that this film, you, you can't say this film has any standard view of morality. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's amoral, but I would say it's honoring the moral journey of each of the characters. Thus, the very interesting conversation with Al Pacino and uh, Robert De Niro. They both have their codes. They recognize and respect each other's codes 
even though they're on opposite sides. There was a lot, and this relates to what you're saying about shadow also, Tom. There was a lot of the parallelism of people on these mm -hmm. different forces trying to work things out, trying to solve the problem, trying to get to what they were doing, trying to prevent the other guy from getting them, you know? So that was very interesting. But I don't think, when I saw that film, I'd never seen anybody show that kind of detail. And I guess what I was also saying is that that gives you a kind of respect. These aren't just simple thugs clunking somebody over the head and pulling money out of a cash register. There was a tremendous amount of talent and intelligence that went into this criminal action. In fact, it is. It, I have also read that real criminals studied this movie and got ideas from the capers they pulled off in the movie. Yeah, in fact, one of those was when uh, a few years after this, some bank robbers dressed up fully in bulletproof outfits and had a sh shootout with police that really changed the way policing was done because they had automatic weapons and the police pulled up with their revolvers and you know a number of them were killed because they were completely outgunned by this. So it did have that impact. Yeah. Val sure. Kilmer uh, changing the ammunition in his machine gun, that yeah. apparently was excerpted at police trainings because it was so right. convincing. And so, yes, uh, and that's the, the right way to do it. The very right way to do it. Yeah. Yes. And Go again, ahead, the Rose. realism, because I also read as I was studying this film, by the way, I just say it's a film I've always admired. I've always thought this was a great movie. One of my favorite crime dramas of, of all, uh, just brilliantly done. But I, I think they actually, the key actors in it had to go get training in the use of automatic weapons. So again, it didn't look fakey. So they looked like guys who knew how to handle a gun. Yeah, it's like hyper-realism. And, and in fact, in that shootout scene in the streets outside the bank, they recorded it. You know, if you ever listen to this on a good television with a good stereo system, it is really, really loud. And they recorded it with full load blank ammunition in order to capture that, right? So he wanted that realism. Um, for me, this movie is something I've seen I don't know how many times. I saw it in the theater when it first came out. It's one of those movies that if it is on television, I will watch it, you know, if it's the last 10 minutes, if it's the first 10 minutes, I will just sit down. In fact, there's a podcast that I really like called The Rewatchables. That's part of the Ringer uh, podcast uh, network that actually started because the guys wanted to talk about rewatching the movie Heat so many times, right? And they've, uh, you know, and uh, so I, I highly recommend uh, the, the the podcast, uh, the, the Rewatchables, and particularly when they talk about this movie Heat. Uh, most recently, they've talked about it three times on the podcast. Most recently, with Michael Mann as well. So really good listening. So uh, a couple of things. Again, number one, very eightish throughout. Uh, it's hard to find a character that's not a type eight in some ways, or you a know, lot of actors were eights too. Exactly, Tom Sizemore, <laughs> Tom Sizemore Danny yeah. Trejo. Trejo, um, yeah. So, uh, so, so that's it. Was there? You know, the Pacino performance. The more times I've watched this movie, the more I've come to appreciate 
Pacino's performance. I agree that he's overacting on a lot of scenes. I have come to find out that there were there was some backstory that they didn't include. Right, number one mm-hmm. is that he had a uh, probably a methamphetamine habit. Right, that mm-hmm. spurred some of that. And when you look at Pacino throughout it, he drives fast. He does everything fast. He talks fast. Right, and with some of the over top over-the-top acting stuff, and I completely agree that Pacino, that's his downfall as an actor, right? You know, the whole thing uh, from Scent of a Woman, all that. Uh, But they were talking about how one of the things that a cop needs to do to manage confidential informants is to keep them off balance, keep them intimidated, right? So to yell at them, to caress them, all these sort of things. So Mm -hmm. I think some of that, a little bit of that went into the performance. I do think the scene in the diner between the two of them is a master class in acting. I mean, I just watched that so many times and just the uh, uh, man, it is just amazing to watch, right? Uh, uh, that man seemed to say it they improvised to a large large degree. Yes, yes. And in fact, they uh, I was watching something where they showed the script of it and most of it was handwritten there were handwritten mm-hmm. notes all over because they were doing it as they went. Uh, fascinating thing. So uh, for me, there were a couple of things in it that were particularly eight-ish. Again, we get that deadness inside. We get a lot of the same themes in De Niro's Neil that we saw in Frank around time, mm-hmm. around making up uh, things, around you know trying to build this life and feeling like I'm running out of time. And frankly, what does time represent? It represents life. Right. You know, it's it's again, it gets back to this thing about vitality. I am running out of my life. I need to capture it. I need to make something of it. The Pacino character, I think there were a lot of really strong eightish things. My favorite of which was actually when he goes home to find that his wife had, in her words, degraded himself herself with this uh what was the guy's name does anybody remember the guy that she slept yeah, I she remember brought the guy I slept remember his name. yeah <laughs> so uh I've seen uh, him in a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, Xander Berkeley is Xander the actor's Berkeley. name, but I forget. Berkeley, yeah. I forget the guy's name in uh, in the the character's name. But she said, I, uh, "Ralph, I had to degrade myself with Ralph to get your attention." And De Niro, I'm sorry, uh, Pacino, <laughs> Vincent, is not upset that his wife slept with Ralph. Uh, he's not upset that Ralph is still lounging around his house. What is he upset about? Who remembers the TV? The TV. Watching you're going to. You're sitting here watching my TV. You know, so you can sleep with my wife. You can sit around in her house, but you're not going to watch my goddamn TV, right? And it made me think of you know. And I'll tell you one of the reasons that rang so true with me is I I, I met a guy back in a period of my life that I don't typically talk about who actually shot another guy for after he found him sleeping with his wife but it wasn't because the guy slept with his wife that made him shoot him it was because the guy drank his last beer after doing it right so 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 that for me makes that scene run true of kind of psychopathic sort of eightish characters right is that you violated that code you know of you don't watch a man's tv after you sleep with his wife you don't drink a man's last beer to add insult to injury right (laughs) well it's it's displaced um, also the anger comes out indirectly 
You know, you, I, I wouldn't say he wasn't upset about his wife sleeping with the right. guy. But he right. focused on the TV, and that became its own symbol. And then what does he Great. do with the TV? Yes, he kicks it out the door of his car, right, you know, as he's getting yeah, ready to yeah. take off. You know. yeah. Also, what was interesting to me there, and that kind of rang true, is because right after he leaves there, he finds her daughter, played by a young Natalie Portman, that attempted to commit suicide. How she got into his hotel room, I'll never know, but uh, there she was in the bathtub bleeding all over. He takes her to the hospital, and, you know, he's right back with his wife, you know, in the hospital. It's like, oh, bygones, you know, bygones are bygones in this sort of situation, you know, and they kind of have this tender moment um, that was interesting. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. TJ, what else about? Well, just to build on that, the tenderness of eights is something we talked about briefly at the beginning, but we haven't talked about specifically with either of these movies, but it shows up in both, and it makes these eight characters very multidimensional in that, yeah, there's a scene where he rushes Natalie Portman to the hospital, and he's very gracious with his third wife that he's on the outs with, and there's a scene earlier where he, where Wayne Grow, who's a psycho eight, basically, doesn't seem to follow any code, kills a sex worker. And when the body's found, there's people outside the police line and the mother shows up and Pacino's there to investigate and the mother bursts mm -hmm. through and he hugs her and holds her very strongly. So there's the tenderness combined with the strength. And yeah. you also see this in a scene when De Niro confronts Val Kilmer's character's wife. The two are on the outs and he's followed her to a motel, and he sees that a man comes out of the motel, and they kind of kiss goodbye. He susses what's going on. He said, goes in and says to her, you're going to give Chris another chance. Let him back into your life. Make a go of this. And if he screws up next time, I will set you up in a new apartment myself. For now, you give him another chance, which I thought was really interesting. He seemed to have an investment in Chris having a good, stable relationship even though this wasn't something he had in his own life. Uh, the, the Val Kilmer character had already said that the sun shines out of her eyes, and he was obviously hopelessly romantic about her. And it seemed like that was part of what De Niro was protecting, or, uh, uh, you know, yeah, protecting is the word. And also, mm -hmm. he treated Val Kilmer's wife the way he treated a Amy Brenneman, the character that he got together with, which is basically domineering, uh, telling them how it's going to be, ordering them. And uh, that seems to be a pattern in a couple of Michael Mann's movies. I'm not sure yeah. why. 
but pretty eight-ish also. There's a lot of eight films that deal with this decision point of self-preservation versus connection, of staying with what I know how to do versus the risk of getting out of the game. There's so many movies about that. Many of them are tragic. Bad Lieutenant comes to mind. Absolutely heart-rending, difficult film, but amazing. Probably Harvey Keitel's best performance. Yeah. But there's a there's that whole dialogue in Heat where Robert De Niro's talking with Val Kilmer and explaining his little thing of just being stepping away and you've got to be ready to do that. You've got 30 seconds to walk away. And he says, Would you be willing to do that? And he said Val said no. <laughs> I'm in this with my wife and my kid, and no, they're everything to me. And he doesn't he doesn't argue the point. Robert De Niro doesn't argue the point. And in a weird way, I think it's, it's, it's you know, through very dense issues and so forth, he feels protective of that little bit of innocence that one of the only people mm-hmm. in the world he trusts has something that he had to give up on. And I also right. think that it's him seeing that in Val Kilmer that makes him take the risk of approaching Amy Brenneman. You know, that, that whole, there's a whole subtle thing in there that we talked about at the beginning, but independence, autonomy, don't risk, don't depend on anybody, but damn, wouldn't that be to feel that way about somebody? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a very yeah. touching part. It really humanized for me uh, the De Niro character. And th- this is one of the beauties, I think, of the way Michael Mann portrays eights in these is that they're not the sort of John Wayne stereotypical, you know, character, but they're multidimensional and you see the vulnerabilities and frailties in them as well in glimpses, but they're there nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, T.J. Moron? Yeah, he mm-hmm. said a lot with Frank and Thief in that the fact that he wants a family is really interesting. The fact that after he successfully robs the bank in California, there's that scene of the beach, which seems like the resolution scene. Jim Belushi's playing in the waves, getting his wife to play in the waves. Frank's not. He's there with Jesse and the baby, and he's just being really kind and gentle and holding the baby, and he's not exploding with energy. Same with when he visits Oakland prison. Very quiet, very tender, opens up. Tells him about, you know, I'm seeing this woman and Oakla recommends, you know, saying, you know, if you want to marry her and have kids, you should do that. He says, yeah. Then when Leo says, I can get you a kid after he's been turned down by the adoption agency for being an ex-con, he says, what do you want? Do you want a white baby, black baby, whatever you want? I can get it for you. And he stops and he thinks about it. He says, I want a boy. So he's got a tender heart beneath this powerful exterior. And it's very easy for eights to be presented in a movie or in an Enneagram workshop as if they're made of rock, as if there yeah. isn't that layer of tenderness that's there underneath, beneath that tough, intense exterior. Yeah. I, I, another, another director I suspect is probably an eight is Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott, uh, who, you know, I know people who know him, but his classic, classic, classic eight movie is Gladiator. Right, that this guy is—they try to break him, smash him. He's betrayed. He's taken down. He's sold into slavery, and yet he will not give up his honor till the very 
till the very end. And the only thing that keeps him going is that love for his family that he lost. You know, I, I, I used to say, <laughs> if I want to see my eight friends have a good cry, I take them to see Gladiator. You know, just <laughs> no one can resist it. You know? But it's uh, but that theme is is a big eight theme that like, can I risk? really loving someone the way I know I do down there. Can I dare to have that vulnerable connection? The very thing we talked about at the beginning. And, you know, I think it's a pretty universal theme that I think most people can relate to. You're saying. One thing that is, I don't know, to, to me makes sense in terms of eights in relation to themselves is that they try to overpower their vulnerabilities and bully their own vulnerabilities in a way that is meant to keep them safe. It's one of those paradoxical back-to-front defenses. And the bottom line within that, the, the emotional logic in, in very unhealthy eights, is if I can just murder my vulnerabilities, then I'll keep them safe. I'm working with a guy who had a minor role in Heat. He was one of the cops, Schwartz, played by Jerry Trimble, who's a former world kickboxing champion, working with him on a monologue about his life. So I asked him what it was like, what was his impression of Michael Mann, and when I asked him this in person, his immediate response was, oh, he's intense. And then I got him to email just to elaborate on that. This is an excerpt of what he said. He said he was very methodical and distinctive in his attention to detail, so much that everything had Mm -hmm. to be perfect. Every aspect of the movie had to be just right. He was generous with actors, allowing Al Pacino to take free reign and do as many takes as what he wanted. He said it was inspiring to see him and Al work together. They got out, they got along like old friends. Nice. Yeah, that methodical thing and his long time to make movies that you brought up, Mario. Let's remember what movie got him interested in film. Ah, Doctor Strangelove, directed by who Stanley Kubrick and what is Stanley Kubrick known for methodical details however many takes and he did a movie yeah. like every 7 years <laughs> right it is funny right. that you know these right. how these things get passed around yeah david fincher's what? like that too and they're both fives are you interested in learning more about our approach to the enneagram go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So one more uh, point about uh, type 8 in the movie Heat that I want to say, and then we'll talk about some honorable mention movies this and it was already referenced the scene where the sex worker's mother comes to the crime scene by the way wayne grow i don't know if you guys know this but two years after 
or a couple of years after the movie Heat was made, that actor got arrested and went to jail for growing medical marijuana and uh, was it did two years in prison where everyone called him Wayne Grow, including the guards, and uh, then went on to, you know, he's still a pretty successful writer, director, producer, actor mm -hmm. in Hollywood. So, uh, interesting story. But anyway, so Wayne Grow kills the sex worker, and uh, Pacino is there, and the mother comes running over. And what caught my attention about that, because I was thinking... Why does this scene need to be here, right? I mean, that kind of felt like a shoehorned-in scene to make a point. And I'm and I'm asking myself, okay, is it to show that uh, you know Pacino has this sensitivity, right, and uh, to comfort this woman? But I thought, you know, that's kind of been made a few times. But what struck me the most recent time is that Vincent is almost absorbing this woman's pain and suffering. Right. As he hugs her, you can see her go from hysterical to as calm as one can be while, you know, on finding out that one's daughter is married. And so that hugging of her was this sort of I will take this on for you. And I think that's a theme with Vincent of him carrying around all this suffering almost so that so that citizens don't have to. Right, so that other people don't have to. He talks about his dream where he sees all these uh, dead people with eight ball hemorrhages, uh, you know, black eyeballs who, you know, are just sitting there not saying anything but looking at each other. And, and this is kind of something, uh, part of the internal state of the eight is that I take on the hard things, I take on the burdens so that you don't have to because I am stronger than you and I will step in and do this. And sometimes I'm pissed off about it. Right? Sometimes I'm going to make other people suffer because I have to do this. Right, But... This is one of the things we see in a healthy eight, the ability to do this in a kind and compassionate way. And in the unhealthier eights, this sort of internal battle, they're fighting for feeling the need to take this on, but being pissed off about it. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, other movies, uh, you know, I think we, we mentioned the movie Manhunter, which is his second film. I, I, I think if anybody has not seen Manhunter and you want to see what Hannibal Lecter was really like, Manhunter is the way to go, played by the, you know, Hannibal Lecter has a, uh, a cameo role played by the great Brian Cox of succession fame these days. Really, really, really creepy in that role. Um, you know, it's interesting, Tom, you said the character uh, played by uh, William Peterson of, uh, of Will Graham is a five. Yeah, so, so for me, I watched that, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it was a clearly drawn character in Enneagram terms, right, because I saw a lot of five stuff and saw some eight stuff in parts there, particularly, yeah. you know, the navigating or social eight, I could really relate to, right, um, in, in, in some ways. Visually very arresting. And Dennis Farina, really put Dennis Farina on the map, yeah. too, who has a bit role in Heat, I'm sorry, in Thief, uh, as does William Peterson. He plays the bartender, mm -hmm. you know, in that scene. So, I don't know, any, any observations on Manhunter uh, from any of you guys? Well, the reason I responded to it in terms of the fiveness that's what jumped out at me yeah. the yeah. last yeah. most recent time i saw it is uh the struggle that he has which is uh between being able to over identify with someone else 
or identify so fully that you get inside of their mentality and their body and their their yeah. psyche. And they, uh, then the struggle that he has recovering from doing that is something that I, in a minor way right, I right, see a right. lot in fives, where you've got hypersensitivity on the one hand, which you may not realize is there because what you're seeing is a person pulled back, disassociated, they're back six inches behind their eyes looking at you through a plane of uh, a pane of plexiglass and that back and forth is something that they're often acutely aware of and i thought the the modeling that they did the the way in which he modeled lector and crazy people was a special talent but then also uh it nearly destroyed him yeah i just i thought that that film like and and this is just a common ground of eights and fives. I think eights and fives hold the constant awareness of just how bad life can get beyond the thinking of most people. Like we can go to nightmarish realities and do, and and there's a way that we see through. And sixes do this to some degree also, but there's a sense of of just this sense of. Here is the world that you think is here, and here's what you're being protected from. And so the Peterson character in there is on that front line, rather like Al Pacino in Heat, against holding the civilized world against just what the hell is out there. And there is that sort of um, trying, it's like the safety around the campfire. You know, the, the aid is keeping that fire going so that there's a, at least an area for me and my loved ones where we don't have to deal with all that out there. But there's also that part that says, like you were just saying, Mario, God damn it, I got to go out and yeah. deal with these monsters. Yeah. yeah. And and that is, you know, kind of part of the link, I think, between eight and five. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's one, yeah. the seven one deals thing. with it by saying, I ain't going to deal with it. <laughs> There's an alternative alternative ending to Manhunter that I saw one time, and I don't know, I think it was on television maybe, but what it was was after Francis Dollarhide, the serial killer who uh, was killed, the main character, William Peterson, had figured out that Dollarhide was actually seeing videos of the family and, that he was about to kill, and they rescued the family. And then William Peterson's character goes to the family and knocks on the door and the woman opens the door and he's standing, just standing there, doesn't really say anything. And she's, you know, a little baffled and uh, confused. And then he said, I'm sorry, I just had to see you. Mm. And it was, it was just like, it was a call back to the, yeah. the, the habit of the serial killer. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I think I had either heard about that or saw it once as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. very, very interesting. Another uh, Michael Mann movie I think is worth mentioning, we, t we referenced quickly, was Last of the Mohicans, yeah. right? So great, great movie. Certainly, I would say Magua was a type eight, yep. you know, yes. if, uh, if nobody else was in the movie. Yeah. Magua was. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think that played by Wes Studi, who's also a, a small role in Heat. And, you know, again, it was all about vengeance yes. and uh, for him and getting vengeance and and that indifference too, right? To, you know, the end when he watches the, uh, the sister, you know, jump off the cliff and he's just like, ah, oh, well, let's go and let's move on sort of thing is there. Let's see. Ali. Ali, I- I'm curious about your guys' take on Ali. Did you guys see Ali? I have not uh, seen anybody, Ali, so I cannot seen comment him? on it. Yeah. No, I didn't either. I th- yeah. TJ, did you watch Ali when when years it was ago? New, okay. Yeah. When it was new. For me, it wasn't a movie that worked, and I think the main thing was that uh, who's going to play Muhammad Ali, right? I mean, you know, if, you know, I mean, Will Smith is as charismatic as they come, and he just didn't compare to what the real Ali was. So I think doing a biography, you know, a, a biopic of Ali is uh, is a, you know, almost impossible to yeah. do. Nobody can capture that sort of energy. I think the one scene that really did work was when Ali is in Africa for the rumble of the jungle and he's running through the village and he sees himself painted on the walls and it, he has this feeling of how big he is, right? How huge and important he is in these people's eyes that he had no concept of. And you can see the realization of that strike him in a really amazing way. So uh, for me, if you want to watch Ali kind of fast forward until they get to, to Zaire and uh, it's, it's, it's a decent movie. Um, Something that Michael Mann said about making that movie was that they filmed those scenes in Mozambique uh, and a quote from him, he said, if a person gets excited about the things that I'm excited by, like, transforming a rundown arena in the middle of Mozambique that hasn't had power or water since 1974, which we had to do for Ali, the challenge like that gets your blood running, then you might be the very kind of person that I'm going to end up working with on a lot of pictures. Mm -hmm. So there's this love of an intense challenge. It's a big thing for it's. I'm and climb that mountain. <laughs> this, for me, is the key thing. You, you know, uh, Russ, I always point out when I'm talking about eights that uh, you and Don called the eight the challenger in your, your books. And I, I think that really captures an aspect of the eight so, so well. That eights, when it comes right down to it, don't feel alive if they don't have a challenge. Right? I, I remember my wife saying to me once that if you don't have a battle to fight, I see the air going out of you like a balloon with a little hole in it, right? Uh, it's just this, you know, this depression of the energy. So the eight needs to find something, needs to find some challenge to exert themselves against. And hopefully, it's a worthy challenge, right? It's a worthy opponent to fight. I always tell my clients to keep eights busy because they need a dragon to slay. And if they don't have a dragon to slay, they're looking around the room and people start to look a little green to them, right? And so you're going to become that target if a better one doesn't come along, right? So eights really need to understand that need for a challenge, that motivating factor of a challenge and learn to manage it effectively. Yeah. yeah. So. Also, if they're running away from something, going towards the boredom and the the deflated feeling and going into it and letting it letting yourself experience it sometimes mm-hmm. takes away the need to to compulsively challenge. Vincent yeah. Hanna has that critical line about what motivates him. I am what I'm up against. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. Uh, she says it really great to him. I want to. I wrote this down because I don't. I, I wanted to capture this. She says, uh, "You don't live with me. You live among the ruins of dead people. You revel. You read the terrain. You search for signs of passing, for the scent of your prey, and you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to, right?" Um, and again, a fixated sort of eight. Um, and I agree with you, Tom, that the eight needs to learn to to be still, right? To uh, to be satisfied for what is and kind of let the sword down a bit. So, okay, guys. So uh, final thoughts on Michael Mann and or type eight uh, before we wrap up. Well, you know, I just think that there are wonderful, you know, portrayals of eights. And as we were mentioning uh, Michael Mann tends to use a lot of eight actors in these roles, so you really get a strong hit of it. One critique would be, and we sort of brushed on, is the absence of the female <laughs> version of the eight, yeah. which is uh, pretty important and uh, not really much represented in Michael Mann. There are other eight, I, I said I feel Ridley Scott, probably an eight, his Breakthrough big film, Alien. Film, Sigourney least. Weaver. Oh, an alien. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there she is. She's the, that she's and it just a little bit more emphasis in those alien films of that that nurturing or protective side of the female eight, that nurturance as protection. And I also was is along those lines, I was thinking, are there any female type eight directors I could think of? I suspect Catherine Bigelow is an eight. And if you look across her collection of films. They're a pretty tough film. She'll give Michael Mann a run for his money. Watch Hurt Locker or Near Dark yes. or or mm-hmm. you know Blue Steel. This yeah, uh, Zero Dark Zero 30. Dark Thirty. These are not and realism, intensity, struggle. She's got that all in her movies, but from a female perspective. But beyond yeah. that, I think that you get plenty of good dose of aid from Michael Mann movies. Yes. yes. Agreed. Right. Tom? Well, I think we pretty well covered it, actually, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'd sure recommend a number of the uh, of the films. Manhunter is one of my favorite films, although yeah. they they kind of misstepped, I thought, by making the psychotic serial killer also gay, as though though that was the height of horror. But uh, forgiving that part. It, um, there's, oh right, right. When they said he was gay, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah, and, and right, then he right, kissed. Right. He kissed his hostage. So it was like right, right. after uh, a fashion. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there's eightness running through both the films we talked about, and the central characters are either doing a good job imitating eights or trying to, and yeah, uh, it's. You know, it's got to do with character. I don't know that this is a direct transform of Michael Mann's psychology or Enneagram style. But because he's got, you know, Muhammad Ali, I think, was a three. And Will Smith is certainly a three. And, you know, he's he's more focused on character and character in relation to context. But he really captures character in a, a nice way, in a way that, kind of stands out to somebody who knows the Enneagram, too. Just to build on what Russ was saying, there aren't any female eights in the movies we've been looking at. The way eights are often described in Enneagram literature or the way eights show up in pop culture, quite often male, which can be an impediment to women who are eights seeing that in themselves. But 
your Enneagram type has nothing to do with your gender. There are women eights, there are non-binary eights. We haven't been exploring that in this podcast, but for season three, we're going to find some female eights. Uh, you can see The Last Seduction with Linda Ferentino. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Linda Ferentino is yeah, oh, it's amazing. very eight-ish. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But she actually said she based her performance on a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's also the movie um, about the uh, the woman that's in Gone Girl. I'm drawing a blank on her name. Yeah, Rosamund Pike. She plays a, a news reporter, a real news reporter uh, who was killed in Syria. Uh, and I forget the name of the movie. Uh, uh, well, Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci's in it, too. Okay, yeah, and a uh, really good female aid characterization. I'll have to think of the name of that, but uh, I, I thought it was it was a good, strong portrayal there. So, all right, guys. Hey, thank you, Russ and Tom, for taking the time to be with us again today. This was really, really fun, and we really appreciate your expertise and your insights and your willingness to share them with our audience. So thanks for being here again, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So you've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.